I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Today, August 4th, is something of an auspicious date. This was the day, 55 years ago, that Pink Floyd released their debut album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. And 20 years before that, on August 4th, 1947, electronic legend Klaus Schulze was born. So I thought we'd take a flashback to our interview with Pink Floyd's Nick Mason and our mini-documentary on Klaus Schulze, who left the planet in April of this year. You're going to want to be in the right headspace for these. But before we set the controls for the heart of the sun, I want to tell you about the Echoes Fun Drive to keep the chill out in the summer. Today in the podcast, we're celebrating two pioneers, Pink Floyd. They certainly get enough media attention. But who remembers the other pioneers like Klaus Schulze? In fact, a couple of months ago, we lost not only Klaus, but Vangelis. And who memorialized these artists and their great work? Not National Public Radio, not any national music program. No, they were only celebrated at Echoes with extensive two-hour shows celebrating their music and documentaries that explored their careers and their pioneering and beautiful electronic music. Who will celebrate the other pioneers who pass, the ones who aren't in the mainstream or who didn't leave under salacious circumstances? I hope Echoes isn't the only one who will do this, but as far as I can tell, we are the ones doing it now. We're cherishing the early pioneers, but we're also exploring the new ones. That's why we're asking for your support to keep Echoes going strong. We want to be able to produce more 30-minute documentaries on the likes of Klaus Schulze, Vangelis, and Kraftwerk. We want to continue exploring the pioneers and their musical progeny. To do that, we need your support. Station fees cover barely a quarter of our budget. We need to raise $20,000 this summer. You can help us do it by making a donation to Echoes now. Just go to echoes.org and hit the support tab. That's echoes.org, E-C-H-O-E-S dot org, O-R-G. I thank all of you for your support. And now, let's hear Nick Mason talking about the early days of Pink Floyd, which effectively started with the release of Piper at the Gates of Dawn 55 years ago today. I first heard Pink Floyd in 1967. My older cousin sat me in a chair, put headphones on my ears, and dropped the needle on Interstellar Overdrive. And yes, and what did the doctor say? <laughs> you, you, that, that, that set the course of my life. <laughs> well, I'm really, really sorry <laughs> about that. That's Nick Mason, the sardonic drummer of Pink Floyd, who is the only member to be on every Floyd album. Pink Floyd reputedly released their final recording for The Endless River in 2014, but now they are pillaging their vast archives and have released a new box set called The Early Years, 1967 to 1972. Many later Pink Floyd fans might not recognize the music on this collection as the same band. Emily tries but misunderstands She's often inclined to borrow somebody's dreams till tomorrow
See Emily Play, the second single from Pink Floyd. But before that slice of psychedelic pop, Pink Floyd were just normal rock fans and musicians. Mason was born in 1944 and got together with schoolmates, bassist Roger Waters, organist Rick Wright, and eventually singer, guitarist, and composer Sid Barrett. As the Pink Floyd sound, they were playing the pop songs of the day. We were really a, a sort of covers band, I suppose, initially. We played all, all sorts of things, but R&B was the, the buzzword of the time. Every band wanted to be an R&B band, and we all uh, bought all the old uh, Lightning Hopkins, um, Lead Belly, Howling Wolf, uh, Muddy Waters, and so on. We all had those collections of R&B records, and that was the cool thing to aim for. Well, I'm a king bee. This is Pink Floyd, sounding a bit like the early Rolling Stones, but singer Sid Barrett wasn't exactly an R&B shouter, and their music changed. Well, the real shift for us was the fact that Sid came and joined the band, moving from Cambridge to go to art school in London, and we finally had someone in a band who uh, was a writer, and so... We didn't just have to play covers, uh, we played original songs. The band became fixtures on the then burgeoning underground music scene in London, playing clubs like the UFO and becoming the go-to band for events called Happenings. The Happenings became a sort of thing, a sort of multimedia events, I think they called themselves, and there'd be poetry and a light show and some music and some creative dancers, which were pretty weird. This was the sort of I suppose starting point for a number of bands, particularly us and the Soft Machine. It was out of these events that Pink Floyd's sound evolved from three-minute pop songs, albeit pretty wild pop songs, to more extended forays, often in the key of space. Part of that came from their light show. We were working with a guy called Mike Leonard, who was a tutor both at the college that Rick, Roger and myself were at, uh, and Hornsey College of Art, and he was developing these sort of light machines that the idea of the light machine was that this was going to replace fine art hung on the wall of your home. You would have this light machine that would spray coloured light out that you would watch uh, for hour after hour. So I think with Hornsey, we actually were ending up really playing a soundtrack for these things. Uh, but it also gave us a sort of uh, identity. We became the band with the light show. On the release of their second album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, Pink Floyd became the herald angels of a psychedelic generation. In his autobiography, Inside Out, Mason quotes famed groupie and author Jenny Fabian, who said, Pink Floyd was the first authentic sound of acid consciousness. So, yes. <laughs> uh, would I agree? I don't know. Um, 
I think the problem is that music is the soundtrack to people's lives anyway. So if if you're tripping and you listen to Pink Floyd, then it's acid music. Despite Mason's obvious hesitancy talking about hallucinogenics, Pink Floyd's principal writer at the time, Sid Barrett, remains one of the most notorious acid casualties, having a gradual psychotic breakdown that found him leaving the band while recording their second album. Frankly, apart from Sid, the, the influence of psychedelics on our music is far more limited than people think. You know, we absolutely were painted with that initially, and particularly under Sid's sort of stewardship, uh, it was sort of part of the story. It absolutely was integral to our launching and uh, initial success, and we wouldn't have been where we are now without him. Pink Floyd was an experimental band. Sid Barrett, then David Gilmour and Rick Wright were extending the sound of guitar and organ into new terrain. They are creating epic works like the title piece to A Saucer Full of Secrets, a 12-minute long instrumental excursion that's part Edgar Varese, part Stockhausen, and part The Unknown. There are a few versions on the box set. I think Norman Smith who was producer at the time, thought this was a rather bad retroactive route to take uh, and was sort of a, more or less was heard to say something along the lines of, well, uh, when they've finished this, they've got to get back to work. One of the understated influences on Pink Floyd was Nick Mason's drumming. He wasn't just a rocker, but a colorist influenced by jazz as well. He's known for using mallets a lot in Pink Floyd compositions. Credit to uh, Chico Hamilton, who plays mallets on a drum kit uh, in a movie called Jazz on a Summer's Day, made a long time ago, uh, about the Newport Jazz Festival. There's a sequence where Chico Hamilton is playing mallets on a and it was something I saw and I thought I've ever since thought that was such a great thing to do very influential uh, the, the uh, set the controls is entirely based and power to cage entirely based on that Chico Hamilton sequence Switch 
Pink Floyd's expanding musical ambitions came into full effect on their 1970 album, Adam Heart Mother. The album was centered on their first sidelong work, the epic title track, with orchestra and musique concrète sound effects by Ron Giesen, one of the unheralded influences on Pink Floyd. Ron Giesen was, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, was, uh, is still uh, English sort of eccentric is the best way of putting it he's sort of part comedian part poet part musician but also he was a techie and I think he taught all of us about tape editing and tape splicing and about the some of the tricks that can be done with relatively simple equipment in particular two-track tape recorders and by running two of them in tandem being able to do a sort of echo loop where the thing keeps doubling up on itself. So he was, again, one of those slight unsung heroes of the Pink Floyd story. hard to believe that this album went to number one in England. As the 60s came to an end, Pink Floyd were not only known for their music, but also for what at the time was a vast array of equipment. The cover of their album, Amagama, may have started the idea of gear porn, with the band's equipment arrayed like an instrumental chevron on the back cover. I know what you mean, I've just been reading Mark Ellen's book, Rockstars Stole My Life. It's got a great couple of paragraphs on, on the importance of uh, that, that particular picture on ba- young bands of the time. And, I mean, you look at it now, it's pathetic. <laughs> you know, a few amps and a PA system and a drum kit. <laughs> I mean, most people have that at home. <laughs> but at the time, that was like, like wow. <laughs> we were the masters, the masters of equipment. Nick Mason isn't an extremely introspective man, with his box set and a massive Pink Floyd exhibit set for the prestigious Victoria and Albert Museum in London in 2017, I thought he might have some perspective on Pink Floyd's legacy, which stretches half a century, especially since he's one of the three surviving members of the group. Rick Wright died in 2008 and Sid Barrett left the planet for good in 2006. I I just think we are part of the late 20th century story of music and um, sadly when I'm gone I'm not going to be that bothered about it. Well yeah but while he may not be concerned Pink Floyd fans have hoisted the group into the upper pantheon of music history. Pink 
Floyd, The Early Years, 1965 to 1972, is out on Pink Floyd Records. And for those of you who can't fork over some $600 for the entire box, there is a bite-sized double CD version subtitled Creation. Since we first talked to Nick Mason, he's been going out on the road with a band called Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets, and they play music from the first Floyd album up through metal. I've seen it, and it's really fantastic. I've also got a retrospective look at Piper at the Gates of Dawn that is up on the Echoes website. I'll have a link to it in the post of this podcast at echoes.org. Now, let's hear about a musician who was definitely influenced by Pink Floyd, but took it in an entirely different and new direction. Klaus Schulze. He would have been 75 today, but he left the planet on April 26th of this year. He's known to his fans simply as Klaus, and he's the seventh icon of Echoes. We've done a lot of features on Klaus Schulze, and upon his passing, I combine them into a sweeping exploration of his work. Kimberly Haas heads into space with Klaus Schulze. Klaus Schulze's music was mixed in a crucible of technology, science fiction, and the tail end of 60s psychedelia. West Berlin was a center for new electronic music. Tangerine Dream, Ashra Temple, Popo Vu and Agitation Free with Michael Hernick all emerged in the early 70s. Schulze was a drummer when he joined Tangerine Dream and played on their first album, Electronic Meditation. However, it was anything but meditative. Klaus Schulze. But the thing with Tangerine Dream in the beginning, it was the same step, but it, because it was just like a punch, like around everything is away. We have to do something new, very aggressive, you know, like punk. It was, from my point of view, uh, earliest and uh, electronic meditation are the punk electronic albums, you know. Tangerine Dream founder Edgar Froza remembers that they were trying to break away from the influence of American and British rock and roll to find their own sound. We had uh, over there in Germany, we had no roots in rock and roll. We could not compare our talent in rock and roll in any way with American musicians, even not with English musicians. So what we had to do is to step away from that, try to move through the back door into a sort of um, different aspects of explaining ourselves through music, you know. And so we uh, realized, okay, what, what we've got, what's our heritage in music? That's classical music and a growing part of technologies. And we haven't done anything else than combining new technologies with the roots of classical music. That's what we did. The Germans became known as the Cosmic Couriers after Ulrich Kaiser, the owner of Orr Records, recorded a series of psychedelic jam session albums like Galactic Supermarket and Cosmic Jokers. Uh, it was a very strange thing, actually, because the uh, producer at this time, uh, Ulrich Kaiser, um, he had a special idea, he had a big cosmic thinking, you know, and um, was uh, taking a lot of trips at this time, and, uh, and he said, it's not enough that we are just doing our albums, 
We have to be a cosmic family, you know, a cosmic courier who brings a, uh, the message all over the world and to the universe and all that stuff. And uh, so he rented a studio, which uh, he rented just I think for four weeks constantly. And um, we all went in there, and uh, we were obliged to take a trip. It was the entrance, and the entrance was a pot with trips filled up. So everybody uh, took his trip, and then there was all people together, part of Tangent Dream, Purple Vu, Ashra, myself. And uh, it, it was signs of the time what we had at this time, you know. But uh, you can't take it serious musically, you know. It's, but uh, as a joke, I accept it, you know. <laughs> Schulze soon switched to keyboards, and in 1972 and 73, he made the experimental drone albums Ehrlicht and Cyborg. But his first major statement was the Time Wind in 1975. It was a sweeping work with only two 30-minute compositions. Its expansive themes and rhythmic pulse were made possible by the use of sequencers, devices that generated ostinato patterns with unerring perfection. Time Wind uh, was from my point of view, it was the most classical electronic album I did, you know. It was the first time that you could have a, a strong rhythm without having a band or with have, having a... I mean, uh, no bass player could play these things for that. He would went crazy after five minutes at least, you know. And that was new also, you know. And, uh, and it got its own power, this kind of monotonous, hypnotic and also psychedelic feeling. Schulte's watershed recording that defined his style for years to come. Many musicians have become more popular borrowing his techniques and imagery, but Schulze remains one of the most distinctive voices in electronic music. To his fans, he's the Mozart of synthesizers, and despite his rock background, Klaus Schulze still likens his music to classical form and structure. I just did the music I liked, you know, and um the reception and the, the way of listening to it is somehow classical, but the composition system is totally not classic. Uh, but uh, let's say the surface looks uh, classic because long pieces, it has uh, a very soft, not aggressive sound, like uh, there's no real heavy metal guitar in it or whatever. And that's similar to classical music, you know. But I was never really aware that I'm creating this kind of uh, classical feeling because for me it was just a nice music which I liked. Klaus Schulze's music exists outside of traditional boundaries. 
His compositions have a classical sense of time, exploring moods and feelings that have become associated with the new age. What I spoke to people that when they come home from work or they're really stressed or they don't feel well, they sit down or lie down and just listen to the music and then start dreaming, you know, have their own fantasy going, you know. Schultz's atmospheric compositions have affected a generation of musicians. The cover of his 1975 album, Time Wind, occupied a prominent spot in the Los Angeles recording studio of synthesist Steve Roach. The first album I heard was Time Wind. And the first time I heard it, it was just a, the uh, classic mystical experience that uh, is sometimes related to you know, a drug experience or some kind of near-death experience or some kind of extreme uh, shift of the paradigm, so to speak. And that album really just happened to be at the right time. And I happened to be at the right time, the right place, heard it. Things connected very, very deeply. The popular Japanese New Age musician Kitaro was introduced to Schulze when he produced an album by Kitaro's early group, the Far East Family Band. Speaking through his translator, Kitaro recalls Schultz's impact. More than actual uh, the, the specifics of uh, what Klaus did with the instrument, it was it was his whole approach to the instrument. Uh, Klaus's personality is almost uh, uh, has a childlike quality, and that that uh, led to a very fresh approach to the use of the synthesizer. It was. It was, it was using the, the instruments and other equipment in the studio in ways which were uh, totally unconventional. For example, he would take tracks that he had built up to a certain point, play them through a Leslie cabinet, mic the cabinet, and remix that into the, into the overall thing. You know, things like that uh, uh, were, were quite unique, he felt, and uh, influential. He was really funny. He played his mellotron, and uh, he didn't know anything about synthesizer, you know. He had a small cork synthesizer, and uh, so I explained a lot to him, you know, and we have a lot of talking, so now... Schulze did more than turn Kitaro and others onto synthesizers. He plugged into a spirit of musical adventure and search that has suffused the best of New Age and space music. Again, Steve Roach. Klaus, for me, certainly was the icon of, of the synth hero. I mean, the solo artist, you know, with the whole sort of image he projected in when I was younger. And I know that he projected to so many um, of the synthesis who were, who were affected by his music and by him as an individual in the way that he would present himself on the covers. And the whole aura about him was very, um, very attractive to someone who was looking, you know, for a new direction. And I mean, Klaus, just, he represented a, a, a real lot in that way, I think. You know, it's a real mysterious quality to it.
These musicians were attracted to Schultz's sense of time and space, and the hypnotic quality of his repeating sequencer patterns. He likes long compositions, and looks upon them as if he were building a piece, atom by atom. I think my kind of music was always a music which uh, you start to listen to, and then you, you have a feeling of being relaxed or seeing a mental movie, and uh, this, I think this demands a certain uh, amount of uh, minutes to come in, then in, to enjoy it, and uh, finally to go out. Uh, it. And if you have too many breaks, or what they say, segments, uh, you, you cannot concentrate on one thing, what you, like, you would like to concentrate on, you know, because if the mood is changing like a ping pong, you know, I think the feeling is very near also to classical feeling. Klaus Schulze's music has always been invested with a science fiction aura. His early cover art used drawings by Oris Amann, depicting aliens with streamlined limbs, living in Dali-esque landscapes. Deeply influenced by the late science fiction author Frank Herbert and his epic novel Dune, Schulze tried to recreate the airy spaces and mystic philosophies of that novel through sound. He had been commissioned to write the score for the Dune film, before it changed directors. But even before that, he'd recorded his own Dune album and a tribute to Frank Herbert on the album 10. Dune was, I think, the most impressive work for me, which I ever read on science fiction, you know. And there are some other bits, Stanislav Lem or Arthur C. Clarke, uh, but this was, I think, the most impressive. It's like a Bible, in fact, if you want to see it like that, you know. And um, so I just want to e express some of, uh, of my feelings, which has nothing to do with the meaning of that, uh, of the Dune work from Frank Herbert, but uh, it deals with my understanding, my reception of this book. Like the characters in Dune, who became addicted to the opiatic spice of the planet Arrakis, Schulze also found his own addictions. In 1983, the pressures of traveling on the road and running a record company combined in a cocaine and alcohol problem. You know, I took everything, tablets, pills, uh, cokes, and whiskey, and every, whatever you had there. But uh, there was a damn rotten time, you know. And the, the problem was that you woke up in the morning and uh, you were really through the tablets. You were sleepy, then you put the first line, you were really on, and then uh, you drink something, and then the concert came, then you took another line, not one, some more. And uh, this was Ryan as the same, we both did that, you know. And uh, then you were really on and you, you want to sleep, you know, so you took a pill to sleep, you know, the stupid circle, you know. The effects on his music were as deadening as his earlier use of hallucinogens was liberating. The alcohol put me in a situation that I became more rocky, you know, more rock and roll heavy. 
I think, for example, heavy metal music, you know, is only pe for people who must be alcoholics, you know, because then it works. If you're really drunken and you listen to heavy metal, it's nice, you know. And it's because it's just a standard, because the rest of, uh, of the head just closes, you know, and just the one and the, the screaming that comes through uh, your brain, the rest is just filtered out by the alcohol, you know. And that's probably affected also my music. They started to do heavy drum things, you know. Schulze has since spent time in a clinic and claims to have overcome his cocaine problem. Even at his lowest ebb, there was a spirit in Schulze's music that could not be suppressed. Michael Shreve, who played drums with Santana and made several records with Schulze, says that Schulze shares an enthusiasm for music that is matched by few people and compares him in spirit to John Coltrane and Miles Davis. For one thing, he gets something going, he gets the sequences going, and he starts jamming on top of it. So in that sense, yeah. And he's very free, you know, and childlike in the actual performance. Laughs, calls the, you know, stereo sequences, my babies, you know, I mean, really, it's very close to them. Everything's very personal with the instruments even, not just the music, you know. I mean, everybody knows, you know, that Klaus loves his music. But that's no different than any, uh, any other great musician that I know. Klaus Schulze feels himself moving back into a more contemplative period. I think I will become more, in the real sense, of more classical. The music will be more, more quiet, more uh, calm, you know, more lovely actually in the moment, you know. And um, experimental, there will be also uh, very harmonic, soft pieces, and I think very going more, again, back to sounds, just to create sounds environments, you know. For Echoes, I'm Kimberly Haas. Klaus Schultz has left such a large impression here. I got to interview him a few times and they were all wonderful and extensive. In fact, I got my first cover story from my first Klaus interview in Keyboard Magazine. I've got a small list of five essential Klaus Schulze CDs on our website along with an appreciation of Klaus Schulze. You'll find them in the reviews and news section at echoes.org and I'll have a link in the posting for this podcast. Klaus's final album, Deus Arrakis, was released just a month ago. Next week in the Echoes podcast, I've got the ambient Americana of Tone Ranger, who talks about spinning Southwest-inspired ambient music. Don't forget to donate during the Echoes summer drive to maintain the chill. Go to echoes.org and click the donate button. I'm John DiLiberto. This has been the Echoes podcast from PRX. See you next time tonight on the radio somewhere in the country or at Echoes Online right now or whenever you want.